Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm delighted today to be joined by a, a close friend and a remarkable individual, Gary Edson, who's the president of COVID Collaborative and is served in a variety of different senior positions across many different administrations. Gary, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure, Steve. In one of your incarnations as a deputy national security advisor and economic advisor in the administration, George W. Bush, you played a really sentinel role in helping co-lead the development of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEFAR, which was rolled out January 28th, 2003 in George W. Bush's State of the Union address. You had worked assiduously with Tony Fauci and Mark Dybul and Josh Bolton and several other people in putting this bold plan together. Initially, 15 billion, five years, very bold targets, bringing mass access to antiretrovirals, among many other targets. You then went on to help also design and launch the Millennium Challenge Corporation. This year is is the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, which is a kind of magic moment in a way. I mean, back in February 24th, you joined and others were present. President Bush came back to Washington, D.C. for a, a really wonderful celebration of that 20th anniversary. And almost everybody who was involved was in that room. And just the numbers that flowed in terms of the lives saved, the lives sustained, the scale of infrastructure impacts and the like, the 110 billion or plus spent in very rigorous and and accountable fashions. This really is an achievement, arguably the, the most dramatic and enduring bipartisan achievement of George W. Bush's tenure. I want you to just reflect. I mean, you were there at the creation. This was something that you had a direct hand in. To you, what's the meaning of hitting this 20th anniversary moment? I think that there are really three things, in my view, that the anniversary reminds us of or should remind us of at this particular moment in time. And the first is that it reminds us that, as you pointed out, It was a Republican president, George W. Bush, who oversaw the largest increase in U.S. development assistance since the Marshall Plan, and in so doing, transformed the way in which development assistance was conceived, used, and delivered in announcing the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which actually preceded PEPFAR. 
He called for, quote, a new compact for development, unquote, between rich and poor nations based upon true partnership, country ownership, and shared accountability for results. And it was on those very same principles that 10 months later, we built PEPFAR and which have enabled PEPFAR now over a 20 year period to save 25 million lives and counting. I think the second thing that the anniversary should remind us of is that even in highly polarized times, bipartisanship is not only vital, but possible. George Bush won the 2000 election by 537 votes in Florida. And yet we aggressively reached across the aisle and we built a really vibrant bipartisan coalition of strange bedfellows, creatures and generals, activists and scientists, CEOs and NGOs. We need to rebuild that same coalition with new leaders on both sides of the aisle to support everything from PEPFAR's reauthorization now at the 20-year mark to pandemic security and preparedness. And then finally, to me, the anniversary reminds us and should remind us all of who we are as a people, our ideals as a nation, and the importance of US leadership in combating global threats. You know, Steve, we recently heard calls for cutting aid and some on the right and the left are questioning our support for Ukraine, arguing that we have enough problems at home. And what I'd argue is that that's zero sum thinking. That's framing the issue of development assistance and foreign assistance as an either or choice between the child in Kiev and the child in Kentucky, the child in Uganda and the child in Utah. That's a false dichotomy and one that we rejected 20 years ago because the mark of a truly great nation is you don't choose between the child at home and a child abroad. You help both as the United States has done from the Marshall Plan to PEPFAR. You know, in talking about the Blending Challenge Corporation and PEPFAR, George Bush once said that for moral and national security reasons, we cannot leave half of humanity behind as we seek a better future for ourselves. There are no second-class citizens in the human race. Those are the three things that I think we need to take away from this anniversary. And now, of course, we need to reauthorize PEPFAR. Which gets me to a more difficult question. I mean, the the power of what you've just described has helped carry this program far beyond into the years than I think we ever imagined when this was first launched. It was launched in the midst of a deep and disturbing crisis that really was shocking. And I think it shocked the president and his inner circle. It stoked their moral and ethical obligation. It was a stability and security issue as well, but it really struck to the humanity of ourselves as a nation and what was happening outside our doors. It's been able to carry forward by demonstrating its value over and over again. It's had strong leadership 
And there's been a very careful cultivation of that remarkable coalition that you've talked about. But we're now in a period of a reauthorization, the five-year reauthorization. And there's a, a difficult set of circumstances at play here when you think about it. The program is aging out. It's seen as no longer emergency, but it's become a, a more established thing that oftentimes many people that are in Congress are less familiar with. They weren't around in that period. And it's become more familiar. And people like at Heritage can say, oh, we need to take another look at this. And that may, on the surface of it, make a little bit of sense. It had disrupted leadership during COVID period that lasted for over two years. COVID itself created a new dominant narrative around an epidemic threatening the world in a sense that eclipsed the sense of HIV, which was coming under control to a very significant degree because of the success of the Global Fund and PEPFAR program, Global Fund being a companion created and launched in parallel. And now we're in the era of Dobbs, post-Dobbs decision, in which abortion politics is washing over almost every decision, including PEPFAR reauthorization. Tell us a little bit about how you're seeing this fight, because it's the challenges to the reauthorization are turning out to be more acute than we had anticipated. I think that's right, though I, I never took reauthorization for granted. You're right that in this post-Dobbs environment, PEPFAR has now become something of a pawn in the culture wars. But it's not PEPFAR alone, as you alluded to. You know, Politico reported just yesterday that the National Defense Authorization Act in the House is imperiled by amendments directed, targeted at everything from uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion policies to abortion, to transgender rights, et cetera. So PEPFAR is not alone in this environment. It is unfortunate that it is being used to score political points rather than for its intended purpose, namely to save lives. I think that there are three things that we need to do to meet this challenge at this moment. First, we need to continue to emphasize something that gets lost in this debate, which you know well, which is PEPFAR is barred by law from funding abortions. This is a matter of, of law. And so that issue is one that is already dealt with in the act itself. Secondly, to your point about, which I think is an interesting one, that the sense of emergency is gone, that HIV was somehow eclipsed by COVID during the pandemic. I think we need to remind people, particularly new members, members unfamiliar with the history here, that the threat remains. You know, in the last reporting period, there were 1.5 million infections from HIV, 650,000 deaths. One young woman acquires HIV every two minutes, and AIDS remains the leading cause of death among women of, of reproductive years. And even though, even though the number of people globally on treatment is approaching 30 million, there are 10 million people globally 
who are living with HIV but not on treatment. Those are preventable deaths and deaths that need to be prevented. So there is a sense of urgency about this. The job is unfinished and we need to finish that job. So we need to remind people of the stakes here. The third thing that I would point out, and you alluded to it again, is that PEPFAR was never just a humanitarian initiative or seen as just a humanitarian initiative. Yes, it was a question of conscience. Yes, it was a moral issue, but it had a national security and foreign policy dimension to it that was critically important. The president strongly believed that a world in which half the population lives in poverty and disease is a world that's neither just nor stable. And as we think about the foreign policy and national security dimensions here, we need to think about great power competition in Africa and the role that PEPFAR played as perhaps the single most effective smart power initiative launched by the United States of America. As China and Russia are exploiting the natural capital of Africa, it's the United States which for over 20 years through PEPFAR, the President's Malaria Initiative, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, our initiatives on neglected tropical diseases. It's the United States that's been investing in the human capital of Africa. And that's paid enormous dividends to us in terms of foreign policy, goodwill, and national security and stability. And I think that some of those very people that are now using PEPFAR as a pawn in the culture wars need to reflect upon the value of PEPFAR in this competition in Africa and the role a continued robust PEPFAR can play in terms of advancing US foreign policy and national security interests, as well as saving millions of more lives. Why do you think the administration and the larger community was caught a bit flat-footed by this challenge, this challenge, alleged allegations emerging that PEPFAR is now an instrument in the advocacy and delivery of abortion services, which is which is false. But that is now in cable in the airwaves. It's now being promulgated out of Heritage Foundation. It's embodied in various statements. You now have Susan B. Anthony Foundation scoring the vote on PEPFAR reauthorization as a a vote in favor as a vote in favor of abortion, which is really quite a quite a shocking choice. I think that folks were lulled to a certain extent into the view that nothing succeeds like success and that the success of PEPFAR would speak for itself. But after 20 years, and with such changes in Congress, where the ch those that championed PEPFAR are now long gone, and those that remember the days when we built that very robust, bipartisan, diverse coalition are gone. I think that people mistakenly took for granted reauthorization. And I think that 
the administration hasn't been sufficiently aggressive in combating not only that narrative, but in promoting the positive aspects of how PEPFAR can serve U.S. interests going forward. And I think that tactically, the White House needs to get engaged here. I mean, the chief of staff, Jeff Zients, needs to start weighing in. This can't be left to fight this battle only to the leadership of PEPFAR itself. This has to be the White House engaged. After all, it is called the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. And that was no accident. It was meant to be owned by whomever occupies the Oval Office. Right. And it is that presidential leadership and ownership which has allowed PEPFAR to endure. And it's the embrace of that by the White House that I think needs to incur here in a very aggressive fashion, tactically. Thank you. Let's shift gears here to an equally complicated and difficult question, which is we're in the midst now of a very polarized, a very toxic era post-COVID. We see it manifest in the operations this week of the Oversight Subcommittee on Coronavirus Pandemic. It's it's um, it's really quite dispiriting to see that noise and see that polarization playing itself through. In your view, and this is a question I think we're that's coming to us from some of the very congressional figures who are attempting to circumnavigate that noise and get to a different kind of conversation. How do we step over that noise and polarization and toxicity? And how do we bring about a new conversation on what's at stake? What are the shared goals? What are the finite top line priorities heading into the future that we can rally behind across political divides and protect Americans against future pandemics? That seems to me to be the fundamental question that's in front of us, not just in Congress, but writ large in this period in the post-COVID era? I've got two responses to that. The first response is you can't find solutions unless you correctly diagnose the problem. And I think that there are myths and misconceptions out there about how the COVID pandemic played out in the United States that need to be debunked for us to get to the point where we can have a level-headed conversation across divides about this. And I think there are really three myths or misconceptions in particular. One is that the problem was that the response was politicized. Related to that is the argument that everything would have been fine if we'd only been able to just follow the science. And the third is the perception that there was a red state response and a blue state response. I think all three of those things are wrong. And as we wrote in the lessons from the COVID war, the product of the COVID crisis group that was led by Phil Zellico and the COVID collaborative had a big hand in supporting it was policy failures that fueled toxic politics more than the other way around. 
And what I mean by that is, first, the argument of politics was the problem ignores the impact of the public health communities and the CDC's own unforced errors. The delay in recognizing asymptomatic spread, the about face unmasking, the testing debacle, those things undermine confidence and trust in the CDC. Second, policy failures like inadequate biomedical surveillance and testing left decision makers with this very limited, blunt, binary and divisive toolkit, protect the economy, protect health, your money or your life, rather than enabling us to protect both. And third, while the rhetoric in red and blue states was dramatically different, the on the ground reality was quite similar. All states shut down, locked down early on. And when that became unsustainable, both red and blue states began to open up in May of 2020. And then they imposed or lifted restrictions as the virus surged or receded. But the responses were generally within a standard deviation of each other. And then most importantly, as you've heard me say before, the argument that politics was the problem ignores the fact that pandemic response and mitigation are inherently political, involving major societal trade-offs. It's not as simple as just following the science. If it were, as you and I heard a politician say recently, all the scientists would be governors. The problem is the science needs to be balanced with the social, economic, and educational impacts. And rather than pretending that we can turn back the clock and somehow do the impossible and insulate public health officials from politics, we need to do a better job of managing the inescapably political nature of pandemic mitigation and response, that tension between individual freedom and collective responsibility. And one of the things that we've discovered is that beneath the heated rhetoric at the state and local level, there were ad hoc collaborations of multi-stakeholder collaborations and fusion cells at, that actually did a better job of balancing the, the scientific interests and the social, economic, and educational outcomes, yeah. maximizing the ability to protect both health and the economy. One of the things we need to do is identify those models, lift them up, and help turn them into peacetime institutions of preparedness with coordinated readiness and data sharing. And that's, of course, one of the initiatives that COVID Collaborative is engaged in with CSIS and with, with the Brown Pandemic Center, an initiative on democracy and health security to do precisely that, uncover these success stories that and learn how divides were bridged in the midst of the pandemic for better outcomes. That's a place to start so that we can start to identify ways to move the conversation forward. Thank you. And we're very excited to be part of that project. And I think it is about to launch. And I think what we discover will, I'm hoping, be quite valuable. Our democracy, many are arguing, is at heightened risk. COVID's one of the factors, but not the only factor. But you've put your brain around this question as well. It's intertwined. It's American democracy is part of the title of this project that we're doing. 
How is democratic governance at risk at this moment, in your view? I think it's at risk, greatly at risk for a number of reasons. The most important one is effective polarization. It's effective polarization that turns the we of we the people into us versus them. And we saw this play out in the pandemic. A contagious virus that doesn't respect race, economic status, borders, or party requires collective action. But effective polarization undermines our ability to do that, pitting individual freedom against collective responsibility. And we need to address effective polarization head on. One of the things that we've done is that together with John Bridgeland and others, we've created something called More Perfect, More Perfect as in a More Perfect Union, an initiative that's in a, a bipartisan alliance. And this has to be addressed, Steve, on a bipartisan basis. And if that isn't a theme for this podcast, I don't know what is from PEPFAR on. It's the way in which we need to aggressively reach across the aisle. More Perfect is a bipartisan alliance of all 14 presidential centers, from Obama to Hoover, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Karsh Center for Democracy at the University of Virginia, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and almost 100 other partners to advance a big idea, namely to advance five sustainable democracy goals. Yes, a clear riff on the sustainable development goals. And those five sustainable democracy goals are universal civic learning, national service and volunteering, bridging divides, trusted elections and more representative and responsive governance, and access to trusted news and information. Now, there are other worthy goals out there, but in our deliberations, we decided that these were the five fundamental building blocks of resilient democracy. And just as with COVID Collaborative and just as with PEPFAR, we are trying to build bipartisan support for these goals and developing targets around them to be achieved between now and the 250th anniversary of independence in 2026. And of course, the work will carry on beyond that as well. And we're now in the midst of early stages of developing a campaign. But the trick is to find those things that center left and center right at a minimum can coalesce around and agree that these are things that should be supported. Now, of course, all that having been said, the rubber is going to meet the road with the 2024 election. And whether we see what we saw in 2016, 2020, or what we saw in 2022 with those that, that lose willing to accept the outcome and those that win reaching out graciously to both opponents and supporters. And so we're working hard with the presidential centers to create action forcing events. We have an upcoming one with the Clinton Institute on um, uh, national service 
We have one with the Ford and Carter Center's upcoming on elections and trusted elections and more representative governance. And we have a number in the works to try and bring parties together across the divide. Well, congratulations on that, Gary. I don't think anything's ever been done across all of the presidential centers as a single unifying project. That's quite an achievement and quite a creative one. We ask all of our guests to close by just telling us what gives them hope and optimism in this period. What gives me the greatest hope is I believe that at the end of the day, the American people rise to the occasion. And we did rise to the occasion when it came to COVID. When President Trump decided to effectively abdicate a federal response, leaving it to the states and localities, people came together in these ad hoc collaborations and in these fusion cells at the state and local level to defend themselves and defend the country against an invading virus. When we were confronted with the scourge of AIDS, this country came together and created PEPFAR and has reauthorized it multiple times since, and I believe will reauthorize it again. I believe that America rises to the occasion when confronted with challenges. And in turn, I'm one of those people who happens to believe that American leadership is absolutely indispensable in this world. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for all of those thoughts. And thanks for being such a generous and active member of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance. Pleasure to participate and always an honor. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.